I um, am really a four-season compulsive hiker. I do all kinds of different things, on-trail, off-trail. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 48, Philip Werner, Backpacking Section Hiker. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. We have a really fun show for you today on backpacking and section hiking, some of the big trails in the United States. Our guest is Philip Warner. Philip lives just outside of Boston, and he has hiked extensively all around the AT in the northern area, meaning the Appalachian Trail. He has summited all of the 4,000-foot peaks in the White Mountains in New Hampshire, and he's done that in all four seasons. He is a writer and just a professional hiker. So, Philip, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Kurt. Well, Philip, will you take a, a minute to tell the listeners more about yourself? I gave him just a brief sketch, but who's Philip Warner, and, and tell us about your backpacking. Well, so who am I? Well, I'm, I'm a compulsive hiker. I do actually a lot of backpacking in addition to um, just day hiking. You know, I live in New England, so a lot of the stuff I, I hike is in Vermont and New Hampshire and Massachusetts and Maine, too. And But I, I've done hiking in other areas as well, mainly through the Appalachians on the Appalachian Trail and the Long Trail in Vermont. But like I said, I, I um, am really a four-season compulsive hiker. I do all kinds of different things, on-trail, off-trail. I'm a trail maintainer. I kind of came into this, you know, I've actually sort of semi-retired at this point. When I was still working in high tech, I had a very high-stress job, and I found that hiking gave me a great outlet to get away from all the things I have to think about at work. And there came a point when I basically decided the hell with work <laughs> or conventional work. I wanted to um, hike pretty much full time. And, and in the process of doing that, I sort of discovered that I liked writing about it. That's why I started the Section Hiker website. And I like to teach people about hiking. Very cool. So you've been hiking for a lot of years then. Yeah, you know, I, I really hiked in phases. I hiked a lot as a kid. I'm in my mid-50s right now. And then sort of during my sort of, uh, you know, corporate life, my career, I pretty much stopped a lot of my, my outdoor activities. And then kind of in my mid-40s, I kind of rediscovered the outdoors through hiking, through whitewater kayaking. And so I actually do a lot of different kinds of things outside. Hiking seems to be the sort of main fabric, uh, if you would. It's the thing I do pretty much every week, a couple of days. So, like that. Love it. Love it. It's a great activity. We interview a variety of different backpackers and hikers on the Adventure Sports Podcast, and we've had several through hikers that have done either the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail or the Continental Divide Trail or all three. And uh, their stories are pretty wild because through hike is such a major undertaking. But I think for a lot of listeners, hearing from someone who's broken it into smaller bites is really helpful because it's more approachable. You don't have to quit your job to hike. You might have to quit your job to be a through hiker. So you started practicing section hiking. Tell our listeners what that is. 
Well, section hiking is when you, you basically take a long trail and you chop it up into the, in the pieces. And they could be literally, you know, 10-mile hikes, 20-mile hikes, 50, 100, 200, 300-mile sort of sections. And, um, you know, when I started this, I was hiking, you know, 10 miles a day, and I would do it on weekends. And bit by bit, I'd, I'd go and hike through the uh, Appalachian Trail or the Long Trail. But, you know, as I progressed, I do longer sections. But, but the nice thing, of course, is that... You can pick the seasons, you, you do it in, so you can actually hike, the, say, the Appalachian Trail in autumn when it's unbelievably gorgeous. Uh, you don't have to do it in summer, you know, during black fly season or, or whatever. You don't have to quit your job, you don't have to, like, leave your <laughs> uh, significant other behind because you've broken up into sort of bite-sized pieces. And people, people, you know, do that uh, increasingly, I think, uh, just, you know, sort of the demands of make it difficult to take huge amounts of time off. Uh, it's just a different way of approaching you know, a nice long hike. Well, that's great. I think what's important is that people get out there and connect with nature. And not everyone can do the through hike. So what you're describing, I think, really appeals to a lot of people. So why would you encourage people to take up hiking and backpacking and maybe section hiking? I like it, obviously, for the sort of mental release. You know, there's a... Uh, I forget all of my troubles when I'm outdoors and I'm pretty much in the moment uh, enjoying the sunshine and the fresh air or, or splashing around in water. It's just, just all absorbing. I, but I, I confess I also like the physical, physical activity. Um, you know, it's a, hiking is pretty much a full body sport. You know, it's fantastic exercise. And, uh, you know, it kind of works every muscle in your body without having to go to a gym. So, you know, it's also great socially, you know, you just meet the nicest people and it's just nice to hang out with. So uh, it's just a great, you know, you can call it a sport if you want. I view it more as a, you know, hobby or a vocation. But, you know, any way you cut it and for whatever reason you do it, it's just a lot of fun. Well, you've certainly done a lot of it. How many miles of the Appalachian Trail have you completed so far? Well, actually, I just got back from a 250-mile hike uh, last month down in Virginia, but I've finished uh, uh, 1,200 miles so far and hope to do another 350 or 400 this year. I'm actually trying to finish it. <laughs> I've been hiking it since uh, 2007 in, in pieces. I'm interested in sort of finishing it off and maybe taking on some other hiking projects. Oh, that's neat. You know, a person doesn't have to finish a major trail to enjoy getting out and hiking in nature, obviously, but it's cool when you have something like that and you can kind of track your progress with. Yeah, I mean, and, and there is a community. In fact, you know, when the, when the Appalachian Trail was actually developed, it was developed more around sort of a section hiking or sort of local ethic as opposed to through hiking. Through hiking is a relatively new manifestation of long trails. So anyway, it, it's it's a good way to approach the hikes, but you don't have to complete the long trail, you know, a long trail, the section hike. People people cherry-pick the AT. There are a lot of parts of the Appalachian Trail, for instance, that are boring as hell. And you can actually just pick the best best parts and, and still have a great experience. Well, that's neat. Hey, will you tell us a story about an amazing experience that kind of got you hooked on the sport? I, I had an experience that basically convinced me to quit my job. And uh, I was hiking across Scotland uh, on a backpacking trip. And Scotland has the most amazing hiking. 
amazing. It's, it's, Scotland's just very underpopulated, has unbelievably you know, beautiful mountain ranges, and they have a, a neat sort of uh, law called the sort of rights of access, which makes it possible for hikers to hike across private property without prior permission. And so uh, it's one of the few countries where you can actually do a, a long-distance hike. Uh, it, it includes trails or uh, just through mountain ranges. And I was on a hike uh, across Scotland. And my, the first time, I've actually done it twice. The first time I did it was 180 miles. It took me about two weeks. Anyway, I got to a, a high mountain pass at the halfway point of my hike. Corey Eric Road or something like that, uh, which was a, a 18th century cobblestone road <laughs> built by like the British Army or something. And um, so on this high mountain pass, a beautiful day, blue sky, and I sat down by a brook. And uh, this was actually in you know, 2010. And I, I thought to myself, this is great. I've just been hiking for a week. I'm in the, in the wilderness. I'm up in the mountains. The hell with my job. I'm not going back to that. <laughs> and, and and so literally, you know, I, I finished the hike, hiked the other half of the of the country, got to the uh, east coast, and then when I flew home, I you know basically sat down with my wife and said, I can't do this anymore. Uh, I really just want to just change my lifestyle and and change our lifestyle and you know do something that actually benefits other people for a change as opposed to selling software that they don't need. You know, I want to do it around hiking. And so, but I really had that sort of vision and that realization that I, I could do that in the mountains in Scotland. And it was just a great, you know, that was sort of a watershed moment for me. That was five years ago. And I really haven't looked back. To be honest, I'm not a minimalist. You know, uh, you know we're, we're not living out of uh, a van. <laughs> you know, I have right. a home. You know, and we have two cars and we have health insurance. We live sort of a, an American lifestyle. We don't. Not to excess, right? But you don't actually have to give it all away, right, to become, uh, you know, uh, an outdoor person. It doesn't have to be that way. There are a lot of people right now who want to know how you pulled it off. They want to know the secrets to being able to uh, live a life based around a passion and uh, not have to go to the 9 to 5. Well, uh, I'll tell you the truth. I worked my ass off, and we obviously had savings when I, I quit my job and, and basically retired. We have no debt. We own our house outright. The bank doesn't, we don't have a mortgage or anything like that. Um, and, you know, I have a lot, my, my wife and I do a lot of weird little jobs here and there. We make some money. And my website generates, a, you know, a modest income as well. You have to come to sort of grips with how much do you really need. You know, use your creativity to generate that income. And uh, it might not be billing at, you know, $200 an hour like you used to, but there, you know, you have to decide, is your free time and flexibility uh, more important than, you know, a big income? Right. And, um, you know, in the morning I wake up and I have some coffee and I then walk into my office at home and write a story on the website. And then, you know, just before this interview, I was out fishing for five hours. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I just got in the car and went, drove to the river and went fishing. And, and it just so, and that was important to me, you know, and, and having that flexibility is really nice. Uh, but like I said, you have to make some compromises, and that's just the way it is. Well, hey, share a story with us about a time that things didn't go right when you were hiking. 
And what did you have to do to manage and what advice might you have for our listeners? Well, let me give you, give you an example. I was literally climbing Mount Washington in winter. Mount Washington is the second highest peak on the East Coast, just over 6,000 feet. You may have heard of Mount Washington uh, in New Hampshire. It, it, it has the world's worst weather. And I think the highest wind speed in the United States was recorded there over 200 miles an hour. Uh, the, the summit is it's actually quite a dangerous mountain. And it's really dangerous in winter. And uh, it was really the first time I attempted it in a sense. And I was actually growing up with a mountain guide. And uh, we were about 100 feet, yeah, about 100 feet from the summit. And we had to turn around. And oh. the reason we had, yeah. <laughs> and I can tell you, this is a bucket list hike, right? And so the reason we had to turn around is that one person in our party, myself, my goggles froze and I couldn't see. And, you know, you have to basically cover every, you know, every piece of uh, skin when you're up there. It's basically a mountain, you know, a, a winter mountain. You know, the average wind speed up there is 40 miles an hour, which is hurricane force. And that's the average. <laughs> that's the average. Right. <laughs> so we had to turn around. And, uh, you know, I was very disappointed. And so were the people who uh, paid to go on this uh, guided expedition uh, with me. So I just decided that I would get good at winter mountaineering in Mount Washington and the White Mountains, mainly some of the big peaks in that area. And so the next year I, I signed up with the Appalachian Mountain Club and took a sort of winter hiking, winter mountaineering class. And one thing led to another, and I subsequently uh, summited Mount Washington in winter, and I've done it many times now, and uh, I became a leader for the Appalachian Mountain Club, and I teach for them. I do a lot of off-trail navigation with them and winter stuff. We hikes all year round. <laughs> so I guess the way to characterize how you deal with some of these issues is, is you know, you just, and this is how I deal with a lot of things. If, if I fail the first time, I just come back until I succeed. You know what I mean? Sure. And I've had that happen to me on section hikes on the Appalachian Trail where I've had an injury and then come back the next year and climb a section of trail that I had to give up on and, and flee from. <laughs> and just that's sort of, uh, at least for me, some people characterize me as sort of the energizer bunny of hiking. <laughs> if I fail once, I just keep coming until I succeed. Um, that's sort of my model. Well, embedded in that motto is the concept that it's okay to turn around and come back another day. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think it's important for listeners to know that. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, the, the, the famous phrase in mountaineering circles is that, you know, the summit is optional. And and actually, even though I've climbed an enormous number of mountains, I've got to say that uh, actually summiting the peak is, has become over time much less important to me. I'm more actually doing the hike these days, be with other people, the social element is, is incredibly rewarding, uh, or just to be outside. And um, and maybe that only comes once you've done a lot. But there are a lot of other benefits to attempting a peak, all the preparation and the mental stuff, uh, research. It's a, it's a great activity just to focus around. But summiting doesn't have to be the end outcome.
you love mountains? You are not alone. Jerry Roach is well known for his extraordinary and detailed guidebook, Colorado 14ers. But did you know that Jerry has written 15 books, including guidebooks to 13ers, Indian Peaks, Rocky Mountain National Park, and more? But he has also written narratives about a lifetime of mountaineering full of Jerry's insights and humor. If you like adventure, then these books are for you. Jerry Roach's books can be purchased at his website, summitsite.com. That's S-U-M-M-I-T-S-I-G-H-T.com, as well as on Amazon and in bookstores near you. Outdoor Pursuits is the adventure hub of Fort Lewis College. This comprehensive collegiate outdoor program not only offers an extensive outdoor equipment co-op that provides everything from tents to kayaks and ski gear to mountain bikes, but also offers a varied trip calendar that includes both instructional and recreational outings from climbing some of the world's highest peaks to enjoying Durango's amazing hiking and mountain biking trails. Our experienced and friendly staff are always up for an adventure and are a great resource for those planning their own outings. Visit the Fort Lewis College website for more information on what Outdoor Pursuits is all about. And remember, adventure is not in the guidebook and beauty is not on the map. like that you mentioned earlier about being in the moment and I'm a big proponent of that as well it's it's about the whole experience that's why we go out there I think sometimes people get summit fever or destination fever on a hike and they don't even notice where they are anymore you know they're trudging along just trying to get from point a to point b and I think wow you just missed the whole reason for being here yeah I'm actually Certainly, you know, obviously, speed hiking is a big thing these days, and there are a lot of people up in the White Mountains. White Mountains is, is, a, is a very rugged place, kind of like the Adirondacks. There's a big peak, what we call a peak bagging culture, where people try to hike all these big peaks. And some of them try to do it as fast as possible, and they try to do it at night, and or on the full moon, crazy stuff. I think as I've, I'm just really familiar with the mountains up here and the trails, and, and I've actually gotten slower purposely over the years just to enjoy myself more on these hikes. So I take more breaks, I sit down and and write in my journal, I bring a fishing rod and spend a couple hours partway up a trail just fishing the stream. You know, it's just unbelievably enjoyable to be able to, you know, have the flexibility to do that. Uh, Obviously, you need the time, but, you know, you you just make time if it's important. That's neat. You know, I'm familiar with climbing 14ers in Colorado, and I've not climbed the high mountains that you're describing there, but one thing I'm noting, you know, you say Mount Washington is 6,000 feet. What people may not realize, a 14,000 foot in Colorado, normally you start that climb somewhere between eight and 10,000 feet or so. So you could actually get more vertical feet on some of these mountains back east. Yeah, actually, you know, for a Mount Washington climb, we're usually climbing 5,000 feet. You're doing that in one day. If you if you string multiple peaks together, you can do you know eight nine thousand feet of elevation. But it's not just the elevation that's the hard part. It's the trails themselves. Uh, trails are very difficult. They're not like paved. <laughs> They're not even sanded or anything. They're you're, you're hiking over boulders most of the way. And the other thing, especially in in, in the Mount Washington area, is that is the weather. That's the real wild part. Right. 
literally the jet stream touches down literally on the summit of Mount Washington. And so it's absolutely horrendous weather half 50% of the year. 50% of the days, actually. There are days you just wouldn't go out because literally they're 100 mile an hour winds and, and sub-zero temperatures. So just a very dangerous place. So elevation isn't everything. There's a, a way of, you know, looking at these mountains and just understanding the nuances of the difficulty involved. Oh, yeah. Most people that climb 14ers in Colorado, they sleep at five or six or 7,000 feet every night. Their bodies are acclimated to that. So it's yeah. probably a very similar experience. And like you mentioned, the weather on that 6,000-foot peak can be much worse than most of the 14ers in Colorado. Yeah, you know, I'm not familiar with the 14ers, but uh, I, I can tell you that the weather, in, you know, on Mount Washington and the peaks quite close to it are, is, is actually pretty horrendous. Sure. <laughs> Atlas conditions, it, you know, there are people who die on these peaks year-round. It, it can be quite dangerous. Well, the 14ers are not for the faint of heart in the wintertime either. 100-mile-an-hour winds are very common and extremely cold temperatures below zero. But something about Mount Washington makes me think it's a little bit more notorious you know, I think you have to look at all of these just in context, you know, based on your, your skill set and make your sort of risk assessment individually. It's hard, it's hard to sort of make these blanket statements. Well, you know, I spent quite a bit of time looking at your website, and I have not begun to scratch the surface. I wanted to mention your website to the listeners. Sectionhiker.com is Philip's website, and he has written just a huge volume of information, gear reviews, trip reports, all sorts of of fantastic blogs where we could learn tons about gear and about hiking. Philip, tell us a little bit more about that. I sort of got into this. Um, I was keeping a journal uh, in 2008. I hiked the Long Trail, which is a national scenic trail, kind of like the Appalachian Trail. And I was keeping a journal. There's a a practice up in New England where people write trip reports. They publish them mainly to communicate information about trail conditions for their friends. And I was writing trip reports about my section hikes on the Long Trail, which is a 270-mile trail, long-distance trail in Vermont. And I discovered that you know, I, I was just publishing them on the Internet, and people responded, and the community formed around them. I discovered that I liked writing, uh, writing publicly. I, I sort of branched off from the trip reports into uh, educational material because I found that when I write about things that I learn about, so I was really picking up a lot of skills, it helps cement things in my mind and make it more memorable for me. Anyway, this all developed and snowballed over time uh, and became Section Hiker, which has you know 2,000 articles on it at this point. I haven't counted the words, but there must be millions of words up there. It's got 10,000 photos on it. And uh, it, it contains information about a lot of the skills for hiking, backpacking, navigation, weather forecasting, all the skills you really need to, to uh, hike safely in the mountains. So it's educational content. I used to be a product manager, which is a, a job where you create new products. And so I, I became very interested in how companies create new products and how companies create their backpacks. <laughs> so I do a lot of gear reviews uh, because I'm interested in what makes a good product, a tent or a backpack or clothing in different situations. And you know, so everything pretty much I experience as a hiker, gear, skills, Trips I go on, 
mainly things I teach, is on that website. <laughs> and it's pretty readable. People get a lot of benefit out of it. And the one thing I really stress a fair amount is how to hike safely but comfortably. So there's a pretty big emphasis on lightweight uh, backpacking, uh, you know, bordering on ultralight backpacking, and really sort of the trade-off between skills Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic resource. What I've seen of it is amazing. I mean, if you put it all into a book, it would be like an encyclopedia. Not that the writing's encyclopedic, but that the volume is is vast, right? There's just so much information there that you've put together on hiking and backpacking. So it's a great resource for the listeners. Yeah, it's a very popular website uh, at this point. It's grown considerably beyond where I ever thought it would go. I have over 100,000 monthly readers. It's actually kind of incredible at this point. I mean, I, I'm I'm amazed by it, and and but I can say I get so much out of the interaction with the you know people who come to the website and you know, people who contact me uh, and ask questions you know about specific trips and stuff. So it's actually it's a fantastic thing personally for me. I mean, I just enjoy it so much, and that's really why I keep doing it. On your website, I noticed a discussion about hiking off trail bushwhacking. And you mentioned that as one of the types of hiking that you enjoy. Tell us a little bit about that. Off-trail hiking in New England is often called bushwhacking because the bushes whack back. <laughs> and uh, it's mainly hiking in very dense vegetation, mainly spruce trees. The goal is basically, generally, to climb mountains that don't have trails going up them. Most of the mountains in, in uh, New Hampshire or Vermont or Maine don't have trails going up into them. One of the great things about bushwhacking and off trail hiking in general is, is the connection to the wilderness is literally right in your face. Right. <laughs> you are you are deeply immersed. One of the fun things is what I find it fun is is you pick a, a, a destination and then you use your wits very much to, to navigate to that spot. And you use a compass, and, and some people use a GPS. I, I personally like using sort of old-school tools like a compass uh, and maps and really uh, reading the landscape, sort of using various geographic clues to sort of pick my way up a mountain slope. There, there are all kinds of, there's all kinds of vegetation there's in the way and landslides, things that aren't on your map. So there's a lot of problem solving involved, and it's just like climbing mountains. It's a fun game. Um, I'm working on a, a peak list called the uh, New Hampshire 3,000 footers, which are all you know, basically peaks either 3,000 feet or higher, um, and there are about 100 bushwhacks on it. They're fun. There's an enormous amount of planning that goes on. There's great teamwork. Uh, usually hike with a partner or two. There's just an immense satisfaction knowing that you've literally gone through wilderness uh, to get to a mountain and then you have to find your way off <laughs> intact. It's difficult, very strenuous. Normally on a trail in the White Mountains, you'll hike about two miles an hour. Um, when we're off trail, we, we might hike, if we're fast, half a mile an hour. Wow. So you're, you're literally battling through bush. Uh, or brush, and uh, so it's very strenuous, but extremely satisfying. I also noted on your website that you are a Leave No Trace Master Instructor, and some people would say, well, wait a minute, how can you bushwhack and do Leave No Trace at the same time? Yeah, well, Leave No Trace, that is a great question. Leave No Trace is a, you know basically an ethical framework for to help people make decisions about 
the impact that their activities have on the outdoors. And, you know, what do I mean by that? Basically, am I having a, a negative impact by walking and destroying some resource that will never grow back or may take hundreds of years to grow back? Am I doing something, you know, leaving a mess, like creating a new campsite or a fire ring that people will discover and stuff like that? And bushwhacking tends to be done in pretty durable environments that grow back quickly where... There are very, very few, if any, people who have gone through an area for hundreds of years. And and I'm, I kid you not. And a couple of people walking through the woods, which is really what we're doing, isn't really going to disturb very much. You know, we'll leave an impact, but the impact in the White Mountains, which is essentially a, a rainforest for all practical purposes, recovers extremely quickly. I wouldn't necessarily say that gives you license to go anywhere and do off-trail hiking. Um, there are places where off-trail hiking can be extremely damaging on, on the lichens and rare plants above tree line. But generally where we do it, we're not going through sensitive environments. We're going through, uh, you know, just prolific forest environments that uh, uh, recover extremely quickly. So, I mean, I think leaving the trace is basically a framework, again, for understanding what your impacts are and, and guiding you to areas where your impacts will be less and helping you decide in any particular context, and by that I mean uh, number of people who, who use an area, the type of weather and ecosystem and so forth, and what your impact will be in that environment. So I view them as compatible, and like I said, I, I am a master educator, means that I basically train the people who teach these no trace. And what we try to do there is basically get people to, to think about the types of activities that they're engaging in in the wilderness. Because each one is different, uh, it's hard to, to, to define absolute laws or rules. That's really not what Leave No Trace is about. It's, it's making people think about what their impact is and uh, reducing it to a uh, manageable level. You know, in my Leave No Trace training, it was interesting. The areas where we see the least amount of life, deserts and high alpine tundra areas and things like that, those are the areas where you think there's nothing there to harm, perhaps. But the reality is that's where the most sensitive environments are because they're trying to etch out a living in a very, very harsh climate. There's a type of soil that's common, for instance, around Arches National Park. And the soil is actually a biomat that takes hundreds and hundreds of years to to grow into – it's literally a bacterial-type mat. It looks like mud. But the reality is you walk across it and you compress it and your footprints land on it, and it could be many hundreds of years before it ever recovers, if it recovers at all. So people you know, might think, well, I just traipsed across, across a piece of dirt – but the reality was it's not dirt. It's a very rare form of living organism or organisms, uh, an ecosystem. So the bottom line is we need to know where we are and what our impacts may be, I think. And what you're describing is when you're in an area where life is prolific and you're still taking care of it, then you're really not making much impact at all. But if you're in a sensitive area, then very minor things like simply walking can create an impact that can last for hundreds of years. Yeah, very well put. And we have those in the Northeast, especially in the alpine environments, where we have uh, the summits are, are covered in snow, you know, nine months of the year. And so there are 
rare plants and lichens growing on the rock that are easily trampled. People create paths with sort of rock borders, and, and we try to keep people on, on those paths and people off the, just the, the, the boulders on the summits. Uh, camping is prohibited, again, to minimize impacts above tree line. So, absolutely right. If you're in a, a verdant area that is just massively prolific <laughs> in its ability to recover and store life, your impacts tend to be a lot less as long as there aren't a lot of people using it, right? But in, sure. in, in high-use areas, and especially slow-growing or, or areas that, that are covered, you know, are, are very harsh, right, such as the desert environment you, you mentioned, there your impacts can really be amplified, right? So, again, it's, it, you really have to look at each circumstance on its own merits. Can't necessarily, you know, with leaving a trace to find laws or rules. You know, you have to understand what, what your impacts are in a particular situation and make your own judgment. You know, there's a lot of common sense for people who have never looked into Leave No Trace ethics. Just the common sense of understanding your environment and caring for it. Those two things right there make a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Leave No Trace is exactly that, common sense. And when I teach Leave No Trace, I don't necessarily focus on Leave no trace. So the the fairly rigid educational framework that has been developed by the Leave No Trace organization. I, I try to focus on the common sense aspects because I think demystifying it and making it less of a, a rigid formal framework is just a lot easier to teach people and that they can relate to it. And so I think the principles are great. So. I try to keep it a little bit more informal. Ask yourself, will I be having a, you know, will, will the activities I'm participating in have a lasting impact on the environment? And will they affect other people's experience in the future? And um, I think that helps demystify things a little bit and, and make it easier to, to make these judgments. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm a big proponent of people connecting with nature and I think that nature should be welcoming. I don't think – some people have the concept that humans are destroying all of nature and humans are some sort of a, a disease on the land. I, I feel like that's pretty extreme. And um, while humans certainly can destroy the planet, we, we've illustrated that many times over. Um, going into the woods and connecting with nature in a meaningful way can help people to understand more about their environment and actually care more for it. So I don't like the concept – that humans are the problem and nature has to be protected from us. I feel like humans are part of nature and we need to know more about it so that we can care for it and nourish it. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. Underwater Fantasies is your full-service scuba, snorkel, and travel center. We are a PADI five-star facility with an on-site indoor heated pool. 
We teach scuba classes several times a month from beginner to professional level certifications. Once you're certified, join us on one of our group trips or let us help you plan your own tropical getaway. Call us at 303-988-6725 or find us online at www.uwfantasies.com. That's U-W-P-H-A-N-T-A-S-E-A-S.com. So, why do you love backpacking and hiking? Why do I love backpacking and hiking? I think it almost changes on every trip I take. But I would, I would, you know, preface by saying it's an all-consuming activity. There's, in many ways, the hike starts before the hike even starts. What, what do I mean by that? There's an enormous amount of preparation that goes into a hike for me. I like to plan my routes. I like to find out uh, about other people's experiences in an area, what things are, are worth seeing. Um, I sometimes look up historical information about hikes. So there's a lot of planning that occurs before I even set foot on a hike. And then I like to write about my hikes. And so I get to pretty much relive the experience and share it with other people. So uh, and those are just solo hikes. And then I you know, also lead hikes and interact with people who come on my trips, the ones that I guide. So for me, hiking isn't just about the experience of actually hiking itself, you know, the physical hike. It, you know, has a much longer lifespan. And it's something I enjoy in all its different aspects, both the physical part, the planning, the leisure part. I like, I really like sleeping outdoors. (laughs) So... Um, all those things contribute to it. The question we often end with is, uh, how does hiking benefit society? I think you just answered that. And, and what did I say that, that resonated with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, just the, the benefits that you have, the social aspects of it, the health aspects of it. Um, I think all of those things come together to say, you know, this is an activity that helps people. It helps people to connect. It helps people to connect with each other and with nature. I see that as a huge benefit to society. What would you like to add? Well, I think it gives you, uh, hiking gives you a way to, in some ways, almost lose yourself. You, uh, when you're out hiking, you are immersed. So, you know, if you have things you're worried about at work or at home, they all kind of dissipate. Uh, like I said, you can, you can kind of lose yourself a little bit in the moment, in nature. Uh, and I think that... That is a huge benefit. And it's kind of reconnecting. In some ways, you can connect with yourself by by letting go. And so uh, I think that might be one extra thing that hiking does for me. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think that's probably of more value than a lot of people in our modern day might think. You know, if you contrast that to sitting in the cube at the corporate office and uh, getting up and racing through the rush hour traffic and then fighting your way home and trying to figure out what dinner is going to be that night and repeating that five or six times a week and then trying to squeeze your personal life into a couple hours on the weekend, what you're talking about is you have an opportunity to really separate yourself from that environment, and that's a beautiful thing. Exactly. Uh, And if you can do it full time, more power to you. (laughs) 
<laughs> right on. We like that. So, hey, can you close us out with a funny story? This is actually a, it was funny for me at least. The first time I actually went hiking in Scotland, uh, not the first time I went hiking, but the first long distance trip I did, I was sponsored by a food company and they make really good dinners and they actually really make great dessert. Uh, when you go overseas, you can't take fuel with you, cooking fuel on, on a plane. Someone, someone knew I was coming over. Uh, he lives in the UK and he agreed to meet me. Uh, at the beginning of my hike, or slightly before, at a pub, and uh, give me a can of gas so I could cook my food. For some reason, we didn't connect at the pub that night. <laughs> and I'm not exactly sure why. He was there and I was there, but I guess we got too in, you know, involved in pub discussions with other people. I never met him. I had no idea what he looked like. And I didn't get my gas. So the first couple of days of, of my hike in Scotland, I had no way to cook my food, which is kind of a problem when you've got food that requires boiling water <laughs> to cook. And so what I did is I, I survived by eating all of my desserts. Um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and they're really good. I had, uh, you know, like banana pudding. I had a lot of banana pudding those first couple of days. Uh, it was really, really good. But you just add cold water. I, I eventually met him about halfway across the country. I'm walking down some road, and I decided to take the night off and go to a and b for the night and get a shower and get cleaned up and, and get a beer. And I see this guy walking down the road carrying this big jug of Mountain Dew, and, and he calls out. Hey, you have to realize, I'm in a foreign country. I know absolutely nobody. He goes, you look worse. And I'm like, <laughs> that? <laughs> and I had your gas. <laughs> and so he recognized me in the middle of literally nowhere, ran up to me and, and gave me a can of gas and bought me dinner and drinks all night. Uh, it was very apologetic, but I was able to eat hot food the rest of, of, the, of the trip. That's fun. There's a, a cultural element to that, too, I think. There's something to do with being in Scotland that makes that work out. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's great. Philip, you have given us a, a plethora of information, and I highly encourage people to go to your website, which, again, is sectionhiker.com. There's so much information there that's so helpful, and, Philip, you've done just a huge amount of work to put that together as a resource for the world, so thank you for that. Yeah. And thank you also for being our, on our program. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, you bet. And until next time, everyone, get out there and have some fun. Will you help us get the word out about the podcast? All you have to do is tell your friends to go to the Adventure Sports Podcast and give us a listen. Also, go to iTunes, rate us there, subscribe, and review. Thank you very much, and thank you today for listening to the show.